Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. There, there have been few divides like the one that we're going to talk about today. And so we're in this series. Uh, what is the difference between Christianity and other major world religions? We talked about Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism. We looked at Judaism two weeks ago. We looked at maybe the most talked about and controversial religion in the world, the Islamic faith. And today we're going to look at the difference between uh, an, a family issue between Protestants and Catholics. And uh, I, I was introduced to these differences when I was a kid. I was a Pentecostal pastor's kid. And I remember uh, going to various churches even um, up until seven. And we, we drove into the new ch- church that we were moving to in Exeter, Ontario, beautiful little town, and drove up to this lovely old church. And uh, I read the sign, it said Exeter Pentecostal Church. And I was like, oh, Pentecostal again? I was like, I didn't know that once you're in the tribe, you kind of stay in the tribe. I was like, can we try Catholic or something? And then uh, one time I was invited to uh, mass with, I'm not sure why, if it was a, a friend, I stayed overnight and there were statues of this woman all over the place and there was incense burning and there were people dipping their fingers in water and crossing themselves and standing, sitting, kneeling, and then standing again. And I could never quite figure out when to go up or down. People seemed to know what to say at the exact same time. And I was like, I was like, you know, Mr. Bean kind of doing... Hallelujah. You know, like, um, <laughs> there was this drop-down tiny bench in front of me, and I thought, this is perfect for a footrest for my little legs, and that's not what it's for, actually. And then when it came time to go forward for what I always had heard called communion, someone uh, leaned over and told me, that's not for you. It was only for Catholics. And here my folks uh, used to let me finish all the communion cups after church, after everybody had gone. Like shots, right? You know? Um, Give me another bartender and keep them coming, you know? uh, So I was getting the impression early on there's a big difference. And uh, then maybe an even bigger influence than church on my life in my early teens was this rock band U2, who I almost accepted into my heart at that age. And they would sing and talk about the the violence and the nonsense between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland. And uh, here was a band comprised of both um, Protestants and Catholics, and they were sort of this model for unity. Actually, this very interesting story. The city cemetery in Dublin. Uh, just put a picture up of that. Now, can you kind of see that there's like an invisible 
line in the grass there. Just uh, put up that arrow there. So, yeah, you can kind of see it's invisible. Do you know, um, do you know what's, <laughs> what's happening here? Underneath, there is a nine-foot wall underground separating the Catholics and the Protestants. They did not want the dead mingling together. And uh, I just find that just the perfect illustration of this divide over the, over the centuries. I, I have spent some time dabbling in certain aspects of Catholicism. I invited a, a charismatic Catholic priest to lead my former church on a, on a spiritual disciplines retreat. I, I would spend a lot of time at a local Catholic uh, retreat center to pray and contemplate. The Stations of the Cross became a very worshipful point of contemplation for me. Got interested in the writings of people like Thomas Merton and Richard Rohr. I have great respect for Catholics. I have, I have learned from Catholics. Um, this could easily be called what Protestants can learn from Catholics, but I am not a Catholic. Uh, I, I would be considered a Protestant. NAC would be considered a Protestant church. And I also know we have a large number of former Catholics attending NAC. And I, and I want you to know there's not a bone in my body that wants to disparage the Catholic church. Um, sometimes I'm asked even, you've maybe asked this, are you Catholic or Christian? And, and I, I think I know what they mean, but as far as I'm concerned, there's not a distinction. Catholics are Christians. But, but, there are points of distinction that are not insignificant. And to get a handle on this, if we could just begin with sort of a brief uh, history of the church, because there's, there's no way to understand Protestantism from Catholicism unless you have just an understanding of Christian history. And I know some of you hate history, you hate it in school, so I will try to make this as quick and painless as I possibly can. The earliest church in the first 40 years or so uh, following the resurrection of Jesus was essentially a movement within Judaism. We talked about that. And a group had come to believe that the Messiah had come. Then around 70 AD, Jerusalem fell to the Romans and the Christian movement was dispersed. The most uh, important church that emerged, as you would imagine, was in Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire. And during the next few centuries, the church defined itself by four very important words. One, holy, Catholic, apostolic. So first, the church was to be one, unified. Second, it was to be holy. It was to be set apart for God, separate from the world. Third, it was to be Catholic, which simply means church, universal. In other words, the church was meant to be a worldwide church, one that included all believers under this umbrella. So the word Catholic was being used of the church long before any kind of institution within Christianity used it for its own. Like when we, the, the, the Apostles' Creed, you know, uh, I, believe in the, oh, oh, I believe in the Catholic Church, one whole, and it, it's been changed now to one holy church, but it was originally, I believe in the Catholic Church, meaning the universal big C church. Finally, the church was to be apostolic. That means committed to the teachings handed down by Jesus through the apostles as contained in the New Testament. 
a major turning point took place in Christian history in the year 312 AD when the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to the Christian faith. Now that meant that the Christian church changed from being this persecuted minority to a faith that engulfed society, kind of the state religion. But, but then shortly after that, everything changed again, as in the Middle Ages, or, or what's sometimes called the Dark Ages. And we could go into the three, you know, the three um, eras within that era, but suffice to say, after the fall of Rome in 410, there was a loss of learning, a loss of cultural cohesion, a loss of order. And during that time, the church was just about the only organization around to provide this social glue. So the leaders of the church, all known as popes, took center stage and gained enormous prestige and influence, not just in the religious realm, but it's like socially and politically. And as you might imagine, there were some divisions in the unity of the church. For example, there was a split between the Western Latin church, which became the Roman Catholic church, and the Eastern Greek church, which became uh, known as the, the Orthodox church in 1054. And there were several issues in that split, not the least of which was the Eastern Greek Orthodox rejection of the supreme authority of the Pope in Rome over the rest of the church. Um, the term Pope, by the way, is Latin for father. Uh, it was initially used for any bishop in, in a, or a church leader. But around the year 1100, it came to be used uh, as the supreme leader in Rome. And with the split between the East and the West, he became the leader of the Western half of the church. But that's nothing compared to one of the biggest uh, historical divisions of all, one that would become known in the 16th century as the Protestant Reformation. Um, there was this, this clear sense among religious scholars and leaders. By the way, um, all these people were Catholic, um, there was this belief that the church had drifted away from the clear teaching of scripture on several key issues, and it needed to be brought back in line with what the Bible taught. And it's important to realize that the spirit of reformers was just that, uh, reform. It was never about leaving the Catholic church or, or burning the whole institution down. You don't leave the universal church of believers for all time, right? And they certainly uh, never lost their understanding of the importance of church. They, they'd agree with statements like, you cannot have God as your father unless you have the church for your mother. And they'd agree with things like, outside the church, there is no hope of remission of sins nor any salvation. Meaning that the church is the custodian of the gospel. It, it is the carrier, the communicator of Jesus's message. And they'd also agree that the church should be one, holy, Catholic, apostolic, but felt that the way those ideas had evolved under the medieval church's leadership was, was wrong. And this is why they're called Protestants, Protestants. They were people in protest. So 
the Protestant Reformation is clear. They were protesting for reform and, and led by people like Martin Luther. He's the one who posted the 95 theses to the Wittenberg Church in Germany in, in 1517. And the reformers began their great quest to restore the church to her biblical form. But, and you may not know this, their effort uh, failed pretty miserably, at least in the short term. In, in, in 1520, Luther himself was excommunicated by the Pope, condemned by the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, as a result, many Christians felt they had no choice but to leave what had been the mainstream only church and formed other expressions of church, Lutheran, uh, Reformed churches, um, and then later denominations, Episcopal, Methodist, Baptist churches, which meant that from that point on, the idea of being one church uh, couldn't be understood at least in sociological or institutional terms. It sure can still be understood in theological terms. Now, what was it that the Protestant reformers thought the mainstream church had gotten off course? Um, obviously, there were a host of issues which divided Protestants and Catholics. Is the Pope really infallible? Uh, should the worship of Mary be a thing? Is it necessary to do penance? Is there really any reference to purgatory in the Bible? But um, those issues, while they're not unimportant, paled in comparison to the, the real heart of the concern, the heart of the Reformation. And that was the authority of the Bible and the role of grace and faith when it comes to salvation. So just let's talk about both. First, the authority of Scripture. Um, when it came to the apostolic part of the church being one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, the, the reformers believed that apostolic authority rested in one and one place only, the, the teaching of the apostles, not some type of apostolic uh, succession plan of bishops and popes. And, and the Catholic church, particularly as it evolved in the Middle Ages, believed that Jesus sort of initiated this chain of authority that extended in an unbroken line, beginning with Peter, uh, to the current Catholic Pope. And this meant that the Pope was the representative, the vicar of Christ on earth. And it eventually included the idea that when the Pope spoke ex cathedra, which means... Uh, from the chair, um, it meant that what the Pope said was infallible. It was um, equal to scripture. And not only that, but that whatever traditions had sort of popped up along the way from other Popes, they were also authoritative, um, as authoritative as scripture itself. And I won't get into the reasons how they justified this, but suffice to say it was kinda, it was kinda weak. Sus, as the kids today say. Um, I, I can tell, um, uh, you know, I, I could go into this with anyone who's interested, but anyways, here's what the reformers said. They said, we believe in apostolic authority, 
But the apostolic authority rests in, in one in one place only, in the recorded teachings of the apostles in the New Testament. And so hence this Latin phrase made famous through the Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And for the reformers, there was no better passage than this one found in 1 Timothy. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scripture from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is useful to teach what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. So for the reformers, any idea, any belief, any doctrine, any tradition, any teaching that was not based on scripture was not binding. The second big idea of the Reformation had to do with faith, had to do with our salvation. The reformers were concerned that over the years, the the mother church had walked away from the idea of salvation by faith through grace. And, And here's what the reformers believed. They believed that Jesus' death on the cross was the full and only payment for our sins, and and salvation comes by accepting this free gift from Jesus. There's not a hidden clause um, that says we have to earn it, work for it, perform for it, do something to deserve it, And, and I don't even, I can't get into even the things like medieval Catholic indulgences. This is where rich Christians would literally pay for their sin, literally, with money, not only was that unbiblical, but it started to feel like a Ponzi scheme, right? And the reformers were like, no, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We accept his gift of grace. And once we accept the gift and enter into a relationship with God through Christ, then our life will demonstrate that gratitude for what he has done for us. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life will begin to transform us and will be changed from the inside out in tangible ways, including being the church, doing good works, generosity, acts of service. But salvation itself does not depend on us doing anything. It is a free gift from from Jesus. So here's how it's talked about in the New Testament book of Romans. I'm going to read it from the message, which is a modern translation. This is what Paul says. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we were in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear the world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God does not respond to what we do. We respond to what God does. 
But that wasn't what the mother church was teaching. And they were teaching that the grace of God isn't just given, it has to be appropriated through rituals and practices and involvements which by and large come through the church. So there was a certain performance level, a certain demonstration, a certain level of works that you perform in order to have the grace of Christ uh, apply to you what he did on the cross. So the church isn't the just the custodian of the gospel. The church had become the means of salvation itself. And so the issue of the Reformation really comes down to this very important question. It comes down really to this. Is our salvation Jesus plus something or some things? Or is our salvation really... Jesus plus nothing. And I believe that there's no more um, distinction between our Catholic brothers and sisters and us, but in this one divide. It's the heart of it, as far as I'm concerned. And while the official teaching of of Roman Catholicism has been softening, moving increasingly towards the insights of the Reformation. And you may find that interesting that they've becoming more and more like what Luther and others had wanted them to be, particularly since uh, this thing called the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. But there's still this divide today, as you heard even from Christine's story, which is why if you talk to Catholic priests, which I have, they'll tell you that salvation is not simply something between you and Jesus. It's between you, Jesus, and the institutional Catholic Church as the means of bringing Jesus to bear in your life. So what do you do with this divide? If you're a Protestant, do you say that Catholicism just isn't Christian? I hope that's not where you land. I don't, Uh, and while some of the official teachings of Rome are in tension with certain teachings of the Bible, both believe that it is Jesus who saves. And we sign off together on the most ancient of Christian creeds, such as the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. So while Protestants believe that the Reformation was needed and that the one true church is no longer that which is headquartered in Rome, there can still be a, this mutual appreciation and respect for each other, mutual enrichment. What's most important is what undergirds all of it, what C.S. Lewis might call mere Christianity, or that it's all about Jesus. So with that in mind, let me just shift gears a bit and, and ask two very important questions. What can Protestants learn from Catholics What can Catholics learn from Protestants? First, what can Protestants learn? Um, And the first thing that comes to my mind has to do with what's called the sacraments. The contemporary Catholic church revolves around 
the sacraments, such as Eucharist, or what we would call the Lord's Supper or Communion. And for the Catholic, this is crucial for drawing close to having a a personal encounter with Christ. And probably, there's too many Protestants who don't pay enough attention to the importance of the Lord's Supper as part of our spiritual life. For the Catholic, worshiping is the Lord's Supper. That's what mass is. That's how central it is to their faith. And I, and I, I think they're kind of right. Theologically, it is the heart of Christian worship. And to my embarrassment, uh, there have been times where we have gone way too many weeks before celebrating the, the Lord's Supper. Um, I, you know, in the kind of Protestant churches I was raised, it was sort of a once a month thing. And maybe we'd get to five weeks or six weeks. You know, this Lent season in 2024, um, the seven weeks, the seven Sundays leading up to Easter, we're gonna have communion every week. I'm announcing that in real time. Uh, Glenn, you're with me? Yeah, good. Oh, okay, good, good. The former Anglicans are with me, so that's good. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Glenn and I have talked about uh, being the kind of church that may maybe would celebrate communion every week. But obviously, it's more about whether it's once a month or, or once a week. It's more about a heart issue. And most Catholics hold this in high regard. Uh, there's other sacraments. The, the sacrament of marriage, which is um, a right and noble thing to hold as, as sacramental. And confession, which while it's handled very differently in the Catholic Church than the Protestant Church, it still serves as a reminder and a challenge to us Protestants to the need to keep short accounts. Keep, keep short accounts with God uh, for the sin in our life. And we would disagree that it needs to go through anyone, even a priest. But the question I guess I'll leave with you is, when, when do we work it out with God? We had a moment this morning. We had a moment at the prayer summit last Sunday. But when else do you practice the discipline of confession? Sometimes I, I fear Protestants have made confession such a private practice. It's become a non-existent practice. I also believe the Protestants can learn from the Catholics in regard to the global nature and responsibility of the church. Protestants can learn from the great social ministry and concern that the Catholic church has demonstrated over the years, the works of Mother Teresa, obviously, the Catholic Relief Fund, Catholic Social Services. We should have a firm commitment to the poor and the hungry and the naked and the homeless. And selfishly, I would like to think that NAC is an example of a Protestant church taking that to heart. But I know that it's an area that we ought to grow in as well. I could say a lot more about what we could learn from our Catholic brothers and sisters, but there are also many important things that Catholics could stand to learn from us prodies, as they say in Ireland. And the first is that Salvation really is Jesus plus nothing. All to him I owe. Um, many, many Catholics intuitively know that they won't be able to follow through, to keep up, to perform, 
to keep the rules. So that performance quota is super frustrating. And, and what can happen is they end up not even trying and giving up on faith altogether. I, I wish I could take my Catholic brothers and sisters, all of them out for coffee and just say like, do you remember when Jesus was crucified? And, and next to him, there was a thief on the cross and the thief offered nothing, could do nothing, could perform nothing. He just simply cried out to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness and Jesus gave it to him. Um, the second lesson of the Reformation is that the Bible really is our authority and it is a book that we can go directly to and apply in our lives. Roman Catholics have the Bible, of course, with a few extra books in it and um, they have the same, many of the same traditions and doctrines um, I can't tell you though how many Catholics I have talked to whose experience growing up was that Bible study was not only not encouraged, but in some cases actively discouraged. And, and it's been in some of your lifetimes where the Catholic uh, church changed from a Latin only uh, service or scripture uh, into English. But the biggest thing that I think Catholics can learn from Protestants is what the Reformation reminded the Christian world about. And Christine said it so eloquently. Our relationship with Christ was meant to be a personal one. Again, it's, it's something in talking to Catholics that they say they may never have even experienced or heard about in the Catholic Church. Many will say they knew about God, but they didn't know God. Or as I heard one priest put it, uh, many in the Catholic Church are born and raised Christian, but they are not born and reborn into Christ. And that, friends, is huge. It's one of the great dangers of the emphasis within the Roman Catholic Church is that people will confuse, you know, dogma with devotion, works with worship. They confuse performance with piety, sacraments with sincerity, and most of all, um, the church with Christ. Folks, there's a, huge, there's a huge difference between ritual and relationship. So um, there's just so much that we can learn from each other, but still, I believe there's a, there's a choice to be made. And this is the last question I'll leave you with. It's not in terms of whether one is right or wrong, true or false. We can have good faith disagreements about the minor things while we unify around Jesus. But maybe it's more of a choice as to where you plant yourselves, how you're going to live out this faith. And, and let me speak directly to those of you who attend here with a Roman Catholic background. Some of you found Christ here. You are growing up here, and this has become home. But you were taught when you were little that if you ever left the church, you'd stand condemned before God in eternity. Or maybe you just feel like it would be turning your back on your heritage or your family. So you're coming here, but you're riddled with fear or guilt or both. And I, I mean this with all gentleness and humility. I agree that family and heritage runs deep. 
but your relationship with Christ runs deeper. And the Holy Spirit is bigger than any church. He's bigger than Protestants and Catholics. He is bigger than Cedarview and Knack. He is not found in just one place or in just one institution. And even the Roman Catholic Church agrees. In fact, um, when Benedict was Pope, a statement came out in 2007 that said non-Catholic churches are, and I quote, deprived neither of significance nor importance in the mystery of salvation. In fact, the spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as instruments of salvation. So while the Catholic church is where the Pope would like people to land, you could translate what he says here as the Catholic position of saying that um, they have to admit they are not the only church and Christ is found outside of the Catholic church. So where are you finding Christ in your life? Christianity has a single founder and a single message. But when it comes to the church, it has this history of division and separation. And, and maybe you need to choose which one you're going to invest in and become a part of. Because coming to one but never committing, I believe, isn't what God wants for you. Maybe you need to decide where you're going to sink your roots, um, raise your kids, where you're you're going to call home, where you're going to get involved, where you're going to give and serve and love. Which local church can you trust, grow in, make a difference in? And that may mean possibly leaving NAC, or maybe it means doubling down on NAC, Uh, after being sort of neutral for a while. Last week, we had two membership classes with with people who want to double down on NAC, who want to formally be part of this local expression of God's family. It was super encouraging. And wherever you land, remember what this place stands for. The authority of the Bible and its practical relevance in your life and the importance of entering into a personal relationship with with God through Christ. Not through anything we've done or need to do, but through faith by grace and grace alone. And that is probably best symbolized in the Lord's Supper. His body broken for you, his blood shed for you not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he chose to do for us. Right now, our American brothers and sisters, many are, are gathering as a family over Thanksgiving dinner this weekend. And in some ways, you know, that is what we are doing here this morning. A family is meeting and gathering in gratitude and thanksgiving for everything that God has done.